Hello, good morning. Welcome to the Nourishing Liberty podcast, where we talk about our food systems and how we fit into them. Rachel, great to have you with me this morning. Good morning, Liz. Nice to be with you again. Looking forward to, oh, I'm going to learn again today. (laughs) I think there's going to be a lot because you have some really great perspectives on things. And we got three main topics to cover today. Uh, We're going to talk a little bit about private membership associations. What are these? Why are they in the uh, news, so to speak? And why are farmers talking about them? And we're going to talk about the chicken and egg thing that's happening in our country today. This is which came first? The eternal question. (laughs) (laughs) This is early February, 2023. Uh, So that's the context of the time frame. And then we're going to get a pet food update from you and talk about gardens, <laughs> which is I, I am really excited to talk about gardens. So hopefully we have time to get into that at the end because I, I need I, I need some inspiration because it's time. It is yeah, time. Exactly. Okay. So to start with, Rachel, uh, this acronym PMA has been in the news recently, and it's connected to the Amos Miller case. So what is a PMA? This stands for Private Membership Association. And within a private membership association, there are private membership agreements that people sign. And of course, we've heard about it a lot through the Amos Miller case, but what is it exactly? And for this conversation, I'm going to use the acronym PMA because that's a lot easier to say. So PMA means the Private Membership Association. And the way that I've seen this used recently in the talking points in the news is that this is some kind of magic pill for farmers and people who want food freedom. That somehow farmers and can create a private membership association or agreement and bypass all of the food laws and regulations in our country. Well, Rachel, <laughs> we know it's not that simple, right? Right. Maybe they can bypass some, some. Well, here's my understanding of how an actual legitimate private membership association and agreement works. An example might be like a local elk lodge or moose lodge, and they can have a private membership agreement so that they do are not required to get a liquor license to serve alcohol to their members who come there. So that might be equivalent to if I invite you over to my house for dinner, Rachel, I can serve you a glass of wine with dinner. Without having to have a liquor license. Exactly. Okay, that's interesting. There's a scope to that. Another example that we've used in the past is Costco or those other big, huge warehouse type stores that you can buy in bulk. Mm -hmm. So I am not a member to any of them. So that means I cannot go shop there. And also to some extent that, you know, that that's not discriminatory, right? You just have to be a member to shop there and get those really great deals and get that break on fuel prices. So these are some examples of private membership associations that work. Now, Rachel, because you've been so involved in politics, you know that you cannot just write yourself out of being beholden to the U.S. laws, right? can try, but um, doesn't always go your way. Yeah. Well, um, and more to the point, we have a 
legitimate process for changing our laws and our policy. Not easy, but it's there. It's not easy. So where does that fit into this conversation on PMAs? Well, I'm going to give you, I'm going to tell you a story and give you an example. What happens is this, people who say, we can protect you from the regulations on X, Y, or Z. You just have to buy this private membership association and you'll be protected. So I've been on farms where farmers pay 5,000 to 10,000, sometimes more for an organization like this to write a letter to the agency overseeing them, whether it's the health agency or the department of ag. And the letters say along the lines of, I am a sovereign man. I am not a person. I am a sovereign individual created by God. And therefore I am not under the jurisdiction of this agency. And this agency cannot come onto my farm and has no oversight over me. Wow. And I bet that works just beautifully all the time. Well, of course it doesn't. <laughs> of course it doesn't, Rachel. Uh, and keeping in mind here that people are paying thousands of dollars for this supposed magic pill. It doesn't work. So Amos Miller, he used a private membership association he collected money from people and he had, but overall he had a moral and fiduciary obligation to the people he is serving, to the people who he is claiming to protect with this agreement. It's his obligation to do so. And furthermore, I happen to know for a fact that he was told repeatedly as early as November, 2015, that this private membership association would not work. It was created under very suspicious circumstances and it absolutely unequivocally would not hold up in court. So he knew this. There's a few other examples that come to mind like outside of uh, food systems, but you know, there's all kinds of people um, that will tell you that you don't actually owe the IRS any taxes if you declare such and such, you know, and you, there's ways to get out of taxes. Um, and, you know, uh, minutia in the law uh, or in the constitution that you can cite and that will get you out of paying taxes. Well, one such person uh, who, I, I don't know the details, but like Erwin Schiff, Peter Schiff's dad, died in prison for tax evasion and, and fraud and stuff. And maybe he was totally correct, but um, the IRS, they're the people with the, the jails and the guns. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, you, you might be like correct in your own mind, but does it actually work in reality? Erwin Schiff died in prison, which was very, very sad but there you go. Um, and also in the precious metals realm, which is the, my field, um, I, I, I think they've kind of fallen to the wayside now, but there used to be people who would tell you that you could store your precious metals IRA and you can have such a thing. You can have a self-directed IRA where you convert 
your retirement account into gold, but as with any retirement funds, that has to be kept with a fiduciary. You can't put that in your home safe. But there were these people that were telling you how you could become your own custodian and keep it in your safe at home. Because a lot of people that believe in precious metals and gold, they, they know that if, if you don't hold it in your hand, it's not really yours. It doesn't feel like yours and you're subject to like third-party risk. But the thing is, you know, you, you, there's almost no way to do that legally. And the IRS will come after you if, if they find that it's improper. And they've all but said, you, you have to have your retirement funds at arm's length. Otherwise the temptation is too great to just spend it down. And that's not what the retirement um, funds are for, like the arrangement and the tax benefits and everything. So yeah, there's, there's um, problems with, with that kind of thing. And people will tell you what you want to hear and you have to really be careful. Yeah. Absolutely, anyway, Rachel. No, I examples. completely agree. And, and there's too many instances of uh, uh, a farmer writing one of these letters, for example, and I'm sure you can think of some of them too, and then not getting enforced immediately. And so they say, oh, look, it worked. Right, right. And, because and they might come after you. They might not come after you right away. Exactly. You know? And, you know, sometimes they, law enforcement, they will wait until you become uh, more successful and you're a bigger orange to squeeze. You know, sometimes it, they'll do that. Just maybe it's a matter of they don't have time or they have other things on their plate, or maybe they're doing it on purpose so they can take more from you when they do come after you. Wow. Yeah. I mean, all of those are legit possibilities. It's possible. I'm not saying that's, that's what happens, but it seems like it in some cases. Well, absolutely. And looking at Amos's case in particular, he collected knowing, being told unequivocally and by legal minds, not just, not just people like me, but legal minds that this would not work. It was, had no legal basis whatsoever. He continued to collect money from people for this protection plan. And by his own admission, he's got 4,000 members and at 35 to $50 per person, that is a huge chunk of change. That's $140,000. So where does that money go? He touts it as legal protection. Where does that money go? All right. That would have been more than enough at the beginning of his fiasco to pay, to implement and set up a local on-farm slaughter facility, fully legalized. That is not the path he took. Okay. So you're absolutely right, Rachel. People need to be extremely cautious of this. And, and you know, we, we, we can always say there is no magic pill here, mm -hmm. right? There is a road to go to change policy. Yes, it is difficult and it is time consuming, but there is a road that we are given to change policy. We are active participants in our government and in our governance. Mm -hmm. And that is the path we need to take. You have to be really careful listening to people who tell you, you know, nice stories, like that you're outside of the jurisdiction of the USDA you don't have to worry about the FDA or you don't have to pay taxes or, you know, all, all of these things that seem too good to be true. You just got to be really, really careful. 
Absolutely. Um, I don't like the IRS any more than anyone else. <laughs> but, you know, I, I, I pay them what they ask for, no more, no less, because I don't want them knocking on my door. You know, I just, right. I, I pay the money to keep them away. And it's, <laughs> it's, it's worth it. <laughs> Well, discernment is very important. I mean, if we want to look at how to, uh, if, how to put it, Rachel, if we want our lives to go towards creating freer circumstances for the next generation, we have to use our discernment and see what's going to have the greatest impact, right? Yeah. And one of the problems with what Amos is doing is what kind of precedent does it set? Right. Right. For everybody yeah. else. Whereas if we're able to change a policy, or expand an exemption on the whole national level, or even on a state level. I mean, come on, we'll take those bites where we can get them. But if we're able to change a policy that says, now every farm doing X, Y, or Z has this level of exemption. We have it, for example, for chickens, right? Any farm, I believe the number is 20,000, any farm uh, raising and processing fewer than 20,000 chickens per year is exempt from many of the uh, regulations on the bigger processors. So yeah, so the point here is that we can take things that already exist like that and expand them, or we, we can create new ones that benefit everyone. But for a, an individual wealthy businessman to set up this precedent this, or, or try to set up this precedent that, hey, pay thousands of dollars to this, it, it doesn't work and it sends the wrong message. Gotcha. Well, thanks for that explanation. That, it, that really makes sense. Um, and that helps me relate it to other things that I know about. But yeah, that, that's, that's new information to me. Yeah. PMAs, be careful. Be very careful. Use extreme discernment in them and absolutely 100% research and see if the people offering it to you are convicted felons for fraud. <laughs> I mean, one, one of the, let's just say that's, that's not entirely uncommon in that arena. Okay. Good to know. Wow. Discernment, discernment. Yeah. So Onto Unfortunately, you, you may want it to be true, but it's probably, it, it might not be true and you need to be open to that possibility. Yeah. Yeah. And then find out, Rachel, I think it's so much like often we want there to be a, a secret formula to wealth or a secret formula to the perfect body or perfect health. And there isn't, yeah. it's just like those things. There's no secret formula. There's no magic pill. I'm and sad. We have, I mean, Rachel, I think that, um, how to put it, going off on a tiny bit of a tangent here, like, I love, I love our country. I really do. I love the people here. And I love this geography and this geology that we have, right? I mean, it's, it's, there's so much beauty here. Now, I don't happen to agree with all of the rules. And I don't happen to agree with many of the things that happened throughout our history. Um, You're right as an American to disagree. Yes. <laughs> yes. 
but that being said, what I, I have a voice in the process of changing things. We all have a voice in the process of changing things. And part of that happens in changing mindsets and changing the ideas that people hold together. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and it's happened so many times throughout our history and it can happen again. So if we want to change the landscape of our foodscape, shall we say, that's where we start. Yeah. And it works. It really does. Because guess what? We got here by changing ideas. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So speaking okay. of ideas and landscapes, chickens and eggs. Chickens and eggs. <laughs> All right. We are in a very interesting time in uh, chicken and egg history where egg prices have skyrocketed, availability is uh, scarce, shall we say. People are scrambling to find eggs. When they find them, the prices are a lot higher. And uh, there's, there's some interesting facts coming out around this. I'm sure you've seen some of them too. Yeah. Um, not not uh, a whole lot, but I did see some some posts on Twitter, uh, and actually, I think it was Candace Owen that kind of amplified this. The idea that there's something in the I think she mentioned Purina feed, uh, chicken feed, um, and and somebody echoed it and said um, when. He started his hens on this Purina feed back in June. They stopped laying eggs altogether in July. And then um, he put them back on the local farmer's feed and they started laying again. And I thought that's that's really weird. That's really weird. That's, you know, kind of perked up my ears. Is there something in like these big processed, you know, mass produced feeds that for some reason would cause uh, hens to stop laying eggs. Well, Rachel, I'm going to give um, my uh, layperson, no pun intended, my layperson <laughs> analysis of that or add additional facts to that. Mm-hmm. And this is multiple conversations with multiple farmers uh, doing additional research on top of that and kind of looking at big picture, the 40,000 foot view of We've talked about this before, the vulnerability of our chicken and egg industry, but we'll touch on that again. So there, there are some brands of feed, and my understanding is that there are a couple things missing from that feed that were previously put in as supplementation. And so that is the protein L-lysine. Now, I want to extrapolate a little bit about L-lysine. So if you look up L-lysine, you'll see it as a supplement that humans can take that helps to uh, combat herpes infections. Yeah, so here's here's how that works. <laughs> now we're going to get a little bit sciencey. So we have another protein called L-arginine, and viruses need that protein to replicate. Okay, L-lysine looks almost exactly like L-arginine to the virus. So if you increase your L-lysine and 
by nature of increasing that, the ratios are different with L-arginine, but decrease L-arginine, you're tricking that virus. They're going for the wrong protein and then they're not able to replicate. So as I was researching this, I'm fascinated to see that there, there's many, many tests done on this as a treatment for herpes infections in humans. Okay. And then recent studies have shown that it's a lot more, it's a lot broader than that. It, it helped with coronavirus as well. And because the method of action is not unique to human biology, it's unique to uh, virus biology, shall we say, then it, it, it's impactful no matter where it's located, right? But that L-lysine protein is essential for chickens for healthy egg production. Wow, okay. Yeah. So taking that out supplementally, and then at the same time that L-lysine goes missing from these chicken feeds and egg production goes down, what did we see skyrocket? Bird flu, right? Yes. All these warnings about bird flu. Well, if the chicken feed is missing L-lysine, is that, can that actually be surprising <laughs> that we're going to see increased viral infections? That, that's an interesting possible mechanism. That's very interesting, Liz. Something to uh, keep in mind. Well, I actually want to bring up one more point, Rachel. Yeah. So uh, Merrick's disease, we've talked about that before. Uh-huh. And Merrick's disease is, I'm going to say there are exceptions to this rule that are rare, but the exceptions make the rule, right? The U.S. egg production and chicken production, meat, chickens, layers, et cetera, relies on, depends upon the vaccine for Merrick's disease. Uh-huh. Merrick's disease is a herpes virus. Yeah. Yeah. So, all right, there's, there's a couple of places I want to go here. If Merrick's disease is a herpes virus, and we know unequivocally that L-lysine helps protect against the replication of the herpes virus. What are you going to get more of if you have less L-lysine? Virus. Yeah, specifically that one. Furthermore, we're completely dependent on this vaccine. Like our layer industry and our whole chicken industry 100% relies on this because for chickens, now there's no risk to human health, but for chickens, Merrick's disease kills them. The virus, I mean, sorry, excuse me, the vaccine, (laughs) um, as my understanding is it does not keep them from getting it, does not keep them, the transmission from happening, but it does keep them from dying from it. Okay. (laughs) Now is, is all of our Merrick's disease vaccine? (laughs) Here's a question. Is it all made in, oh, I don't know, China? See, I don't know the answer to that. A lot of our drugs are made in China, and this has been brought up before. Um, We're very, very heavily dependent on China to make good drugs for us that are what they say they are. Um, And if if China decided one day that they didn't like us, well, it would be stupidly easy for them to just mess with our our drug supply. Well, that's, that's a question I'd like to ask and I'd like to bring up is, Rachel, what would it look like if 
somebody who was not fond of us wanted to mess with our food security. Well, they wouldn't have to invade the country with tanks and guns and, you know, I don't know, spy balloons. <laughs> drones, even. They wouldn't have to right? waste the drones on us. They, they don't have to shoot us. They can kill us in other ways. Well, a scary thought. Yeah. And, and I'd like to put that into a little bit of perspective here that um, I think we'd be still very well fed if we did not have chickens or eggs, or we had very many fewer of them. <laughs> Can I put those words together? Um, so <laughs> it, I don't think that lack of egg production equals starvation. Right. I don't even think lack of chicken meat equals starvation. But it does create upheaval. Absolutely. We've seen it creates price gouging. It creates a perceived scarcity, which causes people to panic. But looking at it in terms of how long it takes to restart, restart the uh, larger growth of both eggs and chickens it means <laughs> we're sitting ducks. <laughs> no pun intended there either, but we really are. That's that's a vulnerability that I believe doesn't need to be there. If we can decentralize a little bit more, have less dependence on whoever is producing this vaccine, less dependence on that, and decentralize so that more communities are producing eggs, producing chickens, we remove some of those vulnerabilities in the short term and the long term. Yeah. It's something to think about. I, I've, I've been thinking about this kind of stuff a lot um, about how modern warfare <clears throat> could take a very different appearance from warfare in the past. The same goals, the same goals. Yeah. The, the goal is not to... Um, uh, shoot or bomb your enemy. That's that that that's a means to an end. the The end goal is to kill them, make them capitulate, and you know take over their land and resources. That's the goal in war. Is your stuff is now my stuff, yep. and your land is now my land. There's different ways to accomplish that that don't look like violence. <laughs> I thought it was spreading democracy, Rachel. Oh, oh yes, yes. Uh, <laughs> Concern for human rights and uh, spreading democracy. <laughs> right. that, that, sorry, that, that, that's the goal of, that's the goal of, well, that, that's uh, U.S. foreign policy, but I'm talking about like war in general. Yeah. Throughout yeah. history, the purpose of wars in general is either to take your stuff in your land um, and kill your people probably in the end or enslave them. Yeah. yeah. Um, or uh, to defend against such a thing, you know. Right. And everyone likes to uh, make the case that they're on, on the defense. No one wants to admit, at least not anymore, that they're on the offense. They all always want, that's why we have false flag operations. And now we're getting into tinfoil hat stuff. But well, I mean, it's I true. Love that, I love that very simple explanation about war. It is to take over other land and resources. Yeah, and, and, and you're right. And, I mean, and remove the population if they're inconvenient to such goals. Right. Um, and in the past, that has looked like guns and knives and bows and arrows and violence. Well, um, and, and, 
also here in this in on this land what did we do we eliminated as much as possible well not we rachel but people who made decisions you and i would not make killed off the american bison to starve out the natives yes um and this is that, not a new strategy right and that was as soon as the native population became inconvenient to our goals yeah right um we get rid of them either enslave them kill them starve them you know yeah and and it it, it can be violence or it can be you know blankets contaminated with smallpox yep for example um and and in today's modern day i i think people need to um just consider <laughs> consider when that might be happening because it looks a lot more subtle it than does. Mm -hmm. somebody coming down your neighborhood with a tank and shooting up your enemies. That, that's not what modern warfare would look like. Um, I don't think, I, I think that would be a, a very stupid strategy um, in a second amendment America. <laughs> like, like we know how to handle that. Like we, we would know what to do. Um, but as far as if they use these other subtle ways, like messing with our food supply, you know, <laughs> accidentally on purpose releasing viruses, you know, mm -hmm. and you know, I, I'm I'm sure you you're keenly aware of China buying up a bunch of farmland, you know, Bill Gates buying up a bunch of farmland. Absolutely. You know? I mean, the, no tanker required. <laughs> you know, just. Yeah die in the deed and then you know piece by piece you've bought our country and China's done that to many other places ar around the globe um and and the IMF they they will loan money to these poor countries that they know the country cannot pay back but you know their resources their mm -hmm. infrastructure is collateral so guess what when you can't pay back your loan shark you know um your bridge and your highways now belong to China or the IMF or whoever. Um, it, it's a very sneaky way of taking your resources without having to uh, commit violence and look like an aggressor. But you're you're not you're not a military aggressor. You're a financial aggressor. So it, it I, yeah. And did you think about these things and maybe think about what's going on and does it look like that would look exactly. Exactly. And, and, and broadly speaking, we have created and allowed for the continuation of these extreme vulnerabilities in our food systems, yeah. right? How can we mitigate some of those vulnerabilities? How can we reduce those vulnerabilities? And I want to say one more quick thing about chickens that is so fun and interesting. So L-lysine is a protein and I don't know the exact proportion of it, but, uh, black soldier fly larva is an incredible food source for chickens. And it's, okay. yes. And it's something that we get these in our compost every year. And when we get them, we welcome them. And, and at times I've taken, like, I've just scooped up enormous amounts of the, of the black soldier fly larva and brought them to other farms that have chickens. And they just love them, but this is such a good chicken feed. So you can grow, if you're chicken farming, or even if you're not, you can grow black soldier fly larva. And that is an amazing food source for- L-lysine? I don't know about L-lysine. 
I don't know the proportion of, I mean, it's a complete protein, right? It's a, it's an insect, it's a larva. So it's, it's gotta be beneficial yeah. on many levels, but I don't know the exact ratio of that particular protein, but it's still a great food source for chickens. And I would suspect other birds that are insect eaters as well. I wonder uh, where can you get a lysine? Like what's, what's the natural source of it? Is what Protein, protein, it's a protein. So um, the- Any protein? Uh, well, I mean, definitely some of the legumes are higher in it. Uh, so okay. soy is a really common protein in chicken feed and it has high levels of L-lysine. And from talking okay. to some farmers, they say that, uh, especially on the local feed mills, right? Where we're seeing that the people who are returning to local feed supplies are starting their chickens on that, the chickens are laying immediately. And some of the farmers I work with who use the local feed are saying that they get L-lysine gets added in supplement form. Right. Hmm. Like in addition, on top of whatever is coming through in the normal protein, it gets added. Okay. And you know, if you're, if you're a human, <laughs> you can go and get like a bottle of L-lysine and take it supplementally. It viruses. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And it helps because the viruses confuse it with the L-arginine. Nice. Okay. Yeah. It's fascinating, right? There's all of these mechanisms that are natural when our ecosystems are, are there, they're, they're there to support us. Mm-hmm. It's like the, the science that I learned about with zinc ionophores during the whole coronavirus thing. I, I learned what it, why zinc is so good for mm-hmm. your cold and your immune system, but it needs what's called an ionophore to get into your cell. So you can take all the zinc you want, but it's not absorbed very well without an ionophore to open the door. And there's four known ionophores, hydroxychloroquine, <laughs> uh, chloroquine, um, uh, like which is related to quinine, so you can get it in small quantities in uh, tonic water. Um, ivermectin. Uh, there's another. There's another quercetin? one that I can't pronounce. What is it? And quercetin. quercetin. Yes, quercetin. quercetin. Yeah. And quercetin is extremely high in elderberries. So you know, for many years, people talk about elderberry syrup and elderberries. By the way always take elderberry as cooked syrup, not raw. <laughs> it doesn't oh. matter to your digestive tract. But um, if you're taking the elderberry, which has long been touted as this immune booster, well, that's why, because the zinc- yes, quercetin. Yes, high, oh, okay. high levels of quercetin. And I want to say onions do too. I'm, I don't know. I'll double check on that one because I'm not sure. I think onions do too. Yeah, all of these um, coronavirus alternative treatments, they work well with other cold viruses too. Yep. Um, So like for me during coronavirus, I never once, not even once ever tested for COVID, not ever. Um, But I'm, I'm quite certain that I had it at least a couple of times because of how my symptoms were. But no matter what, if I felt bad, I would go through a little um, regimen, a little protocol and get a good night's sleep and like 
in most cases, the next morning, just wake up ooh, feeling amazing. So it's and then amazing always, know, but our bodies are designed to heal themselves. Yeah. Yeah. You just have to give your body the support that it needs. And there were a few times when that didn't quite work and I would get sick for a few days, but I mean, yeah, the, these new protocols that I have learned um, are, are good for all kinds of situations, not just COVID. So that's why I didn't test because it didn't matter whether it was positive or negative. I treat it the same. So yeah. why test? Anyway. Well, we have one more that's really two topics to cover today. Okay. Yeah. Last week, we talked about pet food. Yeah, we did. You have an update for us. You were a little bit nervous about feeding your dogs raw. I was, um, but I just held my breath and mm -hmm. gave them some, you know, I cut up some stew meat that I had that I was making chili with, but I, I cut it into little pieces and I put it in there in their bowls and nobody died. Oh, nobody, yay. Nobody got <laughs> sick. Nobody got diarrhea. Everyone was like, very joyful and waggy tailed and happy about it. I bet they um, were. <laughs> and I, I even experimented with um, no kibble at all. Um, I will not say that I did this every day. I sent you a picture of beautiful bowls of dog food. And you were like, you're coming right over. I'm like, yes, I'm gonna feed you dog food. <laughs> but I mean, yeah, I, I made really nice bowls of dog food with sweet potato and oatmeal and some vegetables and raw meat and uh, some egg and spinach and, you know, a very colorful uh, bowl. And um, it was eaten all up and enjoyed by very happy dogs. Aww, so I love it. Um, I, I, I still have these days where I'm just, I'm just so busy. I don't have time to like cook for my dogs because it is cooking, you know, it is assembling and, you know, um, all of that, because uh, you do have to cook the oatmeal. Sometimes I cook the eggs, sometimes I just stir it in raw. Um, but yes, I, I'm, I'm still not perfect, but I am getting better. <laughs> well, I think the important thing is, did that break the ice for you? Are you yeah. feeling confident now that dogs really do love this and they're designed for it and it's good for them? Yeah, um, did we talk about how, um, the enzymes in the raw meat uh, perhaps uh, make them not crave like eating things that are not food like um, their own poop. Did we talk about that or did I read we did that? We not somewhere? talk about that, no. Yeah, um, I, I did read that um, on the Natural Dog website that um, many, many reasons that dogs crave poop and eat poop. <laughs> and that was one of them is that they're lacking an enzyme that helps digestion that they would get from raw meat. So, um, hmm, food for thought. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a <laughs> because my, my dogs do raid the, uh, litter box for cat brownies. Sometimes I find it extraordinarily disgusting. <laughs> well, yeah, I think every, everybody does on that one. So <laughs> yeah, that, to, right. Yeah. Like, why do you do that? And how can I make you stop? <laughs> like, what yeah. can I give you that's better than cat brownies? Yeah. Uh, um, yeah. Well, good. So the raw pet food is a success and a journey in process. Yes. It, we are in flight. <laughs> 
I think the next the next step might be um, raw chicken with bones. Yum. That's a that's a really really good one for dogs. Yeah, that's that's the next challenge. <laughs> yeah. All righty, and Rachel. Then last but certainly not least is um, it's February. It's time. Yeah. It's it's time to start thinking about your garden. And this is such a good reminder because I always forget until it's like obviously spring and it's too late to start doing some projects that you want to do like the but the the green thumb uh has not automatically hit me yet this is part of the reason i'm usually such a failure <laughs> is because i don't think about these things early and plan when i should be planning and right now is when we start thinking about those things definitely and so Rachel, I'm in growing zone seven. Okay. So the USDA puts out, if you're not familiar with growing zones, the USDA puts out a map of the US growing zones and it's really helpful. It's a great visual. Yeah. So go in there and find your zone. And the way it works is uh, the further north, the lower the number, the further south, the higher the number. And then oh, which it zone are you? Tell me again, which zone? Seven. I'm seven. seven. Two. What's that? I think I'm in two now in That's Florida. Sounds, no, no, no. You're going to be higher number. I'm going to be South higher? Higher number. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. So I don't have it in front of me, but um, the tip. So for example, my, Miami, I think is 13. If uh -oh. I can context. Okay. 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 Yeah. So I might be like 12. Or 11. Probably. Yeah. And it's split okay. up even more into like A and B. Right. And that, that is because of slight variations. You know, it's not a straight line, of course. It's like, Gosh. it's yeah. as curvy and twisty as our coastlines are in some places. And it's a really good guide to what your, when to start certain things, what grows in your zone. For example, we can grow banana trees here, but we're never going to get fruit from them because we don't have a long enough growing season. Wow. Okay. So it will tell you, and if you look on the back of every seed packet, or of course we have Google, so look up anything you need to, it will tell you the hardy zones, the hardiness zones. So, um, spinach. Spinach is probably a better plant here than it is for you because spinach does not like super hot. Our spinach stops growing once it reaches like 80 degrees. So spinach is one of those cold hardy ones. Same with collards, same with kale. Spring kale is like the best ever. So if you overwinter kale, if you plant it in the fall, then you're going to get this like super tender, super sweet spring kale. It's amazing, but just like the other ones, kale will stop or it'll just be a lot harder to grow it in 80 plus degrees. Okay. Just doesn't like it. So identify your growing zone and February is the time to make sure that you have the supplies you need. So whatever you're going to grow, order those seeds or make arrangements with a local seed exchange or go to the nursery, make sure you have those seed packets in your little hands. Okay. I wanted to do potatoes and I, I, 
Last fall, I got these uh, cloth buckets for potatoes. Yeah. Um, to grow in like a bucket kind of thing. Yep. So I, I, I got the supplies on hand and then promptly did nothing <laughs> until it was too late. So maybe this spring I can renew my inspiration and, and try for potatoes and the tomatoes. Tomatoes are pretty easy, I think, everywhere. Um, and some basil and herbs. Yes. Well, you're in the perfect zone for all of those things. Okay, great. You can probably start them outside in a couple of weeks. Now we're going to have to wait in, in here. We have to start inside if we're going to start anywhere near now. Like what I like to do in this time frame, February and March, is this is kind of the get all the seeds. We're going to plant, figure out where things are going to go and grow. <laughs> um, start making those arrangements, right? Potatoes will be one of the first things to go in because here in our growing zone, we know potatoes go in St. Patrick's Day. Oh, okay. Nice little calendar demarcation. And I don't know how far in the growing zones that saying extends to. So um, here was what I had in mind to do for potatoes, just to get some potatoes at the grocery store and... Um, maybe let them sit on the counter a little bit until they start to sprout the little knobby things yeah. and then like <laughs> cut them so that each one of those knobby things goes in a spot. Yeah. Is, is that correct? Yeah, you could do that. Sometimes, I mean, I, I've heard that the concern is you really want to get seed potatoes to ensure that the potatoes are not diseased at all. However, right. if you're talking about growing in one container, I don't think that that's the biggest concern. You're not, you're not dependent on that quantity of potatoes for any reason. And if it ends up not growing, you're not out much. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But if you're a serious grower, of course, you got to get from seed potatoes and to know that what kind you're getting. Again, I don't think it matters if we're doing that in one or two or even 10 pots in our backyard. But um, once you get into selling, you got to know what it is you're growing. Mm -hmm. So yes, this is the time to plan and dream and envision and collect all these seeds and get your little, um, your little markers that go in the, to tell you what you planted. I mean, I cannot tell you, Rachel, how many times I have not carefully marked things. I'm like, I'm going to remember that. Nope. No, you're not. <laughs> no, you're not. No, you're not. And then also you want to make sure I have done this in the past too. Um, I've gotten little markers and I use Sharpie, so I'm not making that mistake, but it still fades off. Right. So find something that is a little bit better than like a, a plastic or uh I don't even know what else they're making them from, but the wooden ones work really well. They're basically just popsicle sticks. You just write now, I just write on it what it is and when we planted. Cool. Okay. This is good. This is good. And another right. option, of course, is always to connect with a local farm that is starting seeds in a greenhouse, for example, or they just have the starts. And so you buy like a little pot of whatever for two bucks each and you just plop it in the ground like that you're going to get your production much sooner. Yes. And that's easier. 
I, I have tried to grow from seeds and it is not um, easy. Because <laughs> some okay, things don't sprout. Okay. Radishes, plant radishes. You radishes, can plant radishes yes. every two weeks for like at least a couple of seasons and you're going to be, you're going to get rewarded. Yeah. All right. So fast or so easy. One seed equals one radish. Unlike a tomato plant where you put in one seed and you're going to get a whole big vine that you're going to get hundreds of tomatoes from well, <laughs> a few tomatoes, depending on the variety, but one, one radish seed equals one radish. So if you buy a whole bunch, you can plant literally every two weeks and you're going to have a constant supply of radishes and radish greens. And those radish greens, you can saute, you can put them in a salad. They're so good. Okay. I never thought about eating radish greens. Yep. Sounds yummy. Yep. That's you saute them. They're a little bit, a little bit uh sharp, a little bit bitter, but like so many other greens, other greens. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. So there you have it. That's the wrap up for today. Okay. That was very informative. On your side too. It's, it's good to know that these problems are not isolated to the food issues. (laughs) They're not, not. I mean, yeah. Incentive structures matter and it doesn't take a conspiracy theory when the incentive structure is in place for uh, certain outcomes. So it, 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 it all makes sense. It doesn't require some grand global cabal. Right, exactly. Yeah. Anyway. Ah. (laughs) Eat for health. Know your neighbor and grow some food. Grow some food. It's that time of year. Yes. All right. All right. Bye bye.